0: Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGEN. My name is Jennifer Lee, and I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio.
1: And my name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. Today's episode focuses on a really important topic, and that's the topic of transition in inflammatory bowel disease. This is really important in all pediatric patients with chronic medical conditions who need to navigate Going from the pediatric world where typically parents, caregivers have a much larger uh, degree of responsibility in managing the medical condition for the child and heading off to the adult world where suddenly it's the, the teen or young adult that needs to drive their own care.
0: Today, we are interviewing our most recent NASPGEN Secretary-Treasurer. Dr. Jeannie Wong is the medical director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. And she is a professor of pediatrics at UC San Diego School of Medicine. She has done a lot of research in the area of transition And she also has an interest in using technology to help facilitate this transition. So really looking forward to this conversation. But the other really cool thing about this episode is if you're listening today on December 14th, tonight If you go on Twitter, there is a special Monday Night IBD chat, which will be hosted by our former guest, Eric Benchamal, starting at 4 p.m. Eastern on this topic. And for parents and also providers who have interest, on Wednesday, there's another chat on Monday Night IBD that's taken from the patient perspective. So definitely follow the Monday Night IBD hashtag and at Monday Night IBD account on Twitter.
1: Well on to the show. Dr. Huang, thanks again for joining us on Bow Sounds today.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Excited to be here.
1: For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence?
2: (laughs) I laughed when I saw this question because I'm definitely not somebody who fits in a box. I have a number of different roles and so I thought I would give one kind of directed to the audience that I'm talking to. So, I am a pediatric gastroenterologist dedicated to improving patient self-advocacy and healthcare engagement so that all children with PHGI, liver, pancreas, and nutritional disease can gain access to quality care. That's me career-wise. And then on a personal level, so I'm sorry, I'll put in two sentences, um, I'm the proud mother of three school-age boys, um, and that experience has also shaped my career aspirations and goals.
1: That's pretty great. I have two Sort of school age boys, and I can barely pull it together. So I'm impressed.
2: Well, if you hear screaming in the background, it'll be that'll be them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> A lot of your career has centered on the use of technology to facilitate communication between provider and patient. Can you tell us how you got an interest in this? I think a lot of people mistake that
2: for my having tech savviness. And I think if you asked any of my boys, that is completely not true. Just a level of clarification there. So please don't ask me all of your tech questions. I have absolutely no idea. So I actually got into this space more because I wanted to better connect with my patients. You know, just noticing how much better my patients were communicating, texting on the phone than they were to me in a clinic visit. And I just realized that if I really wanted to communicate with them well, I'd have to join them in their space. And that's how I got into texting in the first place and started to evaluate how to deliver health care interventions through technologies just because they were so uh, enamored with it. People think about texting as being kind of like, oh, such low tech by today's standards. But I, I have to say it remains one of the more commonly used methods to communicate across generations. And it, it's a powerful modality to, by which to deliver healthcare interventions.
0: I think I prefer texting over talking. So that makes <laughs> sense.
1: Texting kind of takes down a barrier, just a quick text it's sort of, there's this lower barrier of entry.
2: And so for us, one of my early interventions was really kind of using text as a way for teens to really get some symptom management and access healthcare, trying to get that out of the hands of their parents and putting it into the hands of teens. And so we gave them kind of these texting ways to reach us. Early on, we did a number of interventions using computer algorithms that you, if you answered a certain way, the computer would just spew at it, you know, already pre-programmed text. And so that would go back and forth between really a computer algorithm. And it was really quite funny to see how many people felt that they were talking to somebody and they loved it. And they would interact with this computer algorithm at two or three o'clock in the morning, which was such a godsend for those of us who were on call. Because the algorithm would help determine when the call needed to be made to the doctor on call And then that would just automatically happen and then call back the teen on their phone who was already up, right, because they were symptomatic. But it helped also kind of get through, you know, kind of the mess of having to call and people not being there. It allows for immediate conversation and immediate access to care that they hadn't had. But the way that they thought that they were already talking to somebody in the beginning, you know, already that connection was already set. And then that was, you know then strengthened by then a call, I think that really enabled a lot of um, young people to really realize, oh, you know, I do have a voice in healthcare, and I can get access to care if I kind of go through various modalities to reach it. And so the healthcare system isn't as foreign or as, you know, such a stranger to me. And it can be actually my friend in helping me get the things that I need.
1: That's a really good segue, talking about how young people can feel like they have a voice or they have a role, Um, getting into the topic of transition of care in, in IBD. So maybe just to sort of lay the groundwork. Can you, can you give us a definition or how you think of what is meant of transitioning care between pediatric and adult gastroenterologists?
2: So I'm probably a little bit different when I think about transitions of care for IBD in that I actually, um, I don't see IBD as being special from other adolescents with chronic disease who transition. I know many people feel that transitions in care really need to be specific to the patient population, but I actually take a much more generalized approach and then try to provide more of a framework by which then we can deliver care and transitions of care. And so for me, transitions in care and inflammatory bowel disease is really no different than transitions in care for any other um, adolescent with a chronic disease. And really what is more important is that it's this movement and this planned transfer from pediatric to adult-centered care is what we need to help them with. The key word in that definition is a word planned, right? Because unfortunately, more often is the case is that that planned um, word is actually removed, and instead what just happens is this kind of haphazard, disorganized, rushed transfer of care from pediatrics to adults. And it's really, unfortunately, that unpreparedness or that unplanned transfer of care that leads to patients feeling quite abandoned. Um, they feel abandoned by the healthcare that, uh, system that was treating them, the pediatric center, and then they don't know how to engage with their new center of care the adult center and so they end up being in this middle ground and they don't connect with either and that has been associated with notably poor health and psychosocial outcomes and so for me it's about providing some support during that gap and that really should be there regardless of what care you know situation patients are in i actually would argue that Transitions in care, particularly from pediatric to adult-centered care, is relevant not only for those afflicted by chronic disease, but actually those that are healthy. We do not teach anybody how to engage with sometimes a complex adult healthcare system. Our entire system has been wrought with problems because we have a population that is health illiterate and a healthcare system that will not help them. And so that, to me, is kind of the, the big issue with transitions. We call it transitions. Sometimes when we talk to our adult colleagues, they might roll their eyes and say, oh my goodness, what is that all about? But the truth is at the bottom, at the base of it, it's health literacy. And that's really where we need to help patients and engage with them so that they have a voice and then they can advocate for themselves. So a little bit of a different, you know, Backstory of that, but that's kind of how I see transition more of a generic approach. Even though the knowledge and the skill sets might be specific to a disease, I feel like what we need is really a generalized approach. And within that approach, then we can start to share resources and really kind of help patients because. In pediatrics, most of our patients just have one disease. We unfortunately are seeing more and more patients who have multiple diseases. And unless we really set a framework by which to kind of bring all of that together, it's going to be very confusing for them to negotiate this for this disease, that for that disease, et cetera. And we really need to bring it together for them so that they can have as smooth as transition as they can.
0: So to piggyback off that, the AAP has recently put out a statement on best practices for transition of care. And there are also centers such as GOT Transition that have core elements for transition. What are your favorite general approaches to transition? So it's ironic that you mentioned those two, um,
2: because the AAP um, guidelines and GOT Transition are actually authored by the same person, Dr. Patience White. (laughs) So I mean, the AAP guidelines are really nice about putting out the, You know, core elements of transition and setting out the framework, but God Transition really kind of put out a nice toolkit to kind of make that much more practically based. And so they're really kind of the same. And I think what I really love about that general approach is that it really takes transition out of the hands of having to be kind of provider specific or patient specific, but takes it up to the system level, really, because you really do need engagement at the system level, because the system has to Notice that transition is an issue they want to deal with, and then they have to dedicate resources to make that happen. And that has to be there in order for the rest of the elements of transition to occur. What things need to happen. Is that we have to be able to assess our young people in regards to their knowledge base and their skill set in order to, you know, navigate the healthcare system. What their self-efficacy is. You know, when you've recognized deficits, what kind of resources do you provide to them? And then how do you identify in a provider on the other side to begin communications with? And then how do you track and monitor them through this entire process of getting ready for transition and then ultimately through that transfer of care and making sure then that that's complete and that they have now engaged with the narrative. New provider in the adult healthcare system. So, all of that has to be in place, but there has to be resources in order to track that. And it's key that there is a system level of investment in order for that to happen. And so I do um, love that entire approach. And I think that is very much what is needed. But again, I think as we've kind of learned moving forward, that system level is not just isolated to a given institution, but it has to be across now institutions, right? Pediatric adult, you know, across states, et cetera, wherever our young people are going, because I'm also a firm believer that, you know, young people should not be limited. They should be able to go where they want for their career education now. Aspirations, and it's for us to support them so that they can do that where they want to do it.
1: Do you have, in your mind, a kind of an ideal age or age range when the transition process should start?
2: I agree with most of the guidelines that 12 is a great place to start. It's not actually for the 12-year-old at the age of 12. It's getting the parents ready at the age of 12. That's the key person you're speaking with, actually, at that time. And we have this disease. You know it's already taking a lot to kind of manage this disease. But imagine then your young person doing this on their own. They can't do this tomorrow. We're going to have to prepare them. And it's going to take you and me together to make this happen. A little bit of independence, but not too much so that things go awry. But that has to be kind of our goals over time. And when you get that buy-in from the parent at the age of 12, then as you move towards kind of a little bit more cognitive ability to kind of manage a lot more of these skills and knowledge, et cetera, at around 14 to 15, that's not a foreign concept to them, right? You've been gradually speaking with them over time and educating them over time and showing them the tools that they can engage with over time. And then that tends to be a much more... um, dynamic process and actually a kind of process that tends to kind of go on on its own you actually find families go okay is it time for me not to be in the room and and it's great you know because you really do want that level of engagement where they're engaging and interested in the process too because it makes that much more fruitful and then you'll see that happening at home right I mean I just had a a parent the other day you know saying she she gave her son like five days to contact me you know she wasn't going to contact me for five days in the message and then she was going to do it but gave him five days, and he did within the, on the fifth day. But <laughs> nevertheless, he did it. So, um, but it's that, it's kind of really engaging a family through this process. And those are really the most rewarding.
1: How do you manage or how do you navigate the kind of somewhat awkward uh, situation when the teen is diagnosed at a stage when transition should be something that you're working on as well?
2: I agree. It's a very difficult situation. Clearly, if you know, based on, I guess for us here in the U.S., sometimes dictated, unfortunately, by insurance when people have to move over to the adult side. And so when we are aware of a certain date that we have to meet, what we'll often do is, depending on the timeline that I have, I'll either introduce it right up front and just go, I know this is kind of a crazy time, but I want to let you know these things have to be happening in parallel in order for things to be there for you when you need them, when you move over to the other side. We assess patients annually in general, starting at age 12 and getting to whatever age that they want to transfer, where we go over kind of these self-efficacy skills, et cetera. Basically the transition checklist, I think that many people are used to but we also pair that with a practicum. And what that means is I find many of my teens saying that they know their meds. You ask them, I can list my meds. They will say yes, 100% of the time. And then when you ask them, okay, I want you to list your meds for me. They'll inevitably miss one, they'll misspell one, they'll call it a green pill. And, and they don't know the milligrams and the dosings or the route in which they get it, et cetera. And inevitably they'll leave off the biologic, which is the most important <laughs> thing on the list. And so we consistently ask this because I, you know, the first time I might say, well, you know, we, we could have done this better. But then over time, I really reinforce my guy, I, I really need you to know the milligrams that you're on. And I need you to pay attention because this matters. It really matters because when we check levels, it's all dependent on this dose. And I need you to understand that. And so it's kind of over time, you can have a much more full conversation with them. Also do an annual medical summary where we go over their entire diagnosis, what's happened with them, meds that they've taken, them failed, tests that they have. We kind of list all of those. And the reason I bring this up is that in the cases where it's a quick transition, you know, I've only got maybe a, a couple of visits or so. I will give them that medical summary or just, you know, write it right, right in front of them on that diagnosis. And I'll say, look, this is kind of a just general framework of what you need and what a new doctor who takes on the care of you needs to know. And I just want to give this as a framework because we're going to have to be learning this all at the same time. And I just want to go over it with you. And I will I will support this with documents about what is inflammatory bowel disease, what are all these categorizations that we have, et cetera. And together we can learn these things. And then I'll also provide provide the Doc for Me app with additional resources that they can read. Whatever modality by which they learn the best, I give it to them. I just try to meet them where they are. Again, it's a, a lot of information. And then I also just say, you know, whether you see me or not, you can always kind of ask us for this information and we can converse it kind of as a support mechanism. But I definitely want to kind of plug you in with a person on the other side that can support you during this time. So it's a little bit of an additional craziness, but it is worth it for them, even if it is for a couple of visits, to give them all that information so that maybe at that time they can't manage it because, again, there's too many things going on in their head. But if you give it to them, then at least they have something to go to when they are a little bit, when
0: things are calming down a little bit, and then they can read and learn a little bit more. So you mentioned the transition checklist. Uh, Maybe not every center would have one of those. So can you explain that a little bit more, what elements are involved and where somebody can go to find one if their center may be looking to implement something like this?
2: So gottransition.org actually
0: has a great one. And you
2: will find that it's actually quite general. So it's about saying, for example, I know all of my medications. I know how to take them, right? I know how to schedule my doctor's appointments. So it's quite generic. And so in that sense, actually, it's perfect because... Those kind of things can then be enabled within a system for all chronic diseases, right? Because it's not specific to a given disease. It doesn't say, I know my inflammatory bowel disease medicines. I just, I know my right medications and why I take them. And so that can be used in general for a patient. And then what, what you need to have, though, to support that is for each one of them, those checklist items, what we have developed in our system and what I would encourage others to do is then be specific to answer that for a specific given disease. And you will find within there that there are certain things that you can share information, like I know how to refill medications, right? And so that's the general document that you can give out. It doesn't really matter what disease that they have. Or I know how to use a thermometer to measure, right, for a temperature or a fever, right? I know what a fever is. The one thing that actually got Transition's does not have, and I think it's because, again, it was written in an era where maybe EHR or electronic health records was not so prevalent, is this need to use and become familiar with the patient portal. And that's a big piece that we do try to push out at our institution because it's really kind of the future of healthcare communications. And we really do need our young people to learn how to do that. And then in truth, they already know how to do that. They text, they email, you know, they do all of this stuff that, you know, this is really kind of quite basic, but it's important for them to understand that and then also kind of learn how to look at labs and read medical documentation so that they can learn what are the key elements of information by which, you know, th- that they need to know in order to then gain access to care. And so those are kind of things that, you know, we have been pushing more and more kind of engagement in the patient portal because we're in an era where health information is, you know, at a level of sharing that we've never really seen before. It's this interesting time. It's important to give people enough knowledge so they can understand that information, right, and not be freaked out by it. So it's important that you support that dissemination of health information with some useful tips and helpful information so that they can know how to use that information in a way that is helpful to them.
0: Would you mind summarizing what we know about sharing notes with our adolescents that are preparing for transition? So
2: there's a complete dearth of data in this area and you know i think there's a lot of angst about sharing our notes and documentation with families let alone with teens and so, you know, I think there's a fair amount of literature out there in regards to open notes and the success of open notes in regards to adults and adult patients, where adults really do feel much more engaged in their um, healthcare care with reading their notes. They're actually more likely to be compliant with the plans that have been made and you know, being able to read their notes. And they feel kind of a little bit more attached actually to their provider. Interestingly enough, even for many of these providers who really didn't alter their notes at all, really just used it as we always have used it, which is just as a means of communication provider to provider. And on the flip side, I was recognizing that a lot of systems were just saying, well, we're just not going to share it to teens. And it was just this blanket decision that was made. And a lot of the logic behind it was that, well, you know, they don't know how to read it. They don't have the health literacy to make anything of that information. And so inability to comprehend and inability to use that information, why would we ever share it with them? And, you know, having worked with this group for quite some time, I was like, well, you know, that's not really fair. Why don't we get some data? Let's just show them a note and see what they get out of it. You know, I'm going to ask them some pretty basic questions about what they need to get out of the notes. You know, what is their health status? Did you have a change in your medical or treatment plan? Just those kind of things. And then see also if they felt that what was documented in the note was accurate. Went ahead and did that within our own uh, clinic and really found that patients really loved it. They generally agreed with what was stated in the note. Again, these are just general GI visits. Actually, a fair amount of my IBD patients also kind of participated as well. And they were actually quite good in regards to comprehending what was happening for themselves. You know, So again, we took 12 to 20 years old, and then we compared it to a provider who did not write the note and asked them to kind of like figure out the health status and whether a medical management change had happened. And there was really about 60, 65% agreement between the teen and the provider, which I actually thought was quite high, because I think most people were assuming it was going to be 10, 15 percent, and here it was 60, 65 percent, and they were quite satisfied with their notes and so, you know, quite happy with that. And so, to me, I said, well, you know, I would say to you that if they're going to start a teenager at 60 to 65 percent, and if we give them then the tools by which to better understand those notes. Then that is a good reason to start sharing notes with them, and they have to prepare to be able to share read notes when they are going into the adult system. You know, we can't just suddenly like oh you can't see notes now, but starting tomorrow because you've moved to another system now you can. That just didn't seem right to me, and so and also you need to kind of teach them how to read notes and what people are saying. So that's how I got you know involved in you know that area, and again there's plenty of need. So if anybody wants to join me in that research, please do. We need more data. Again, I, I don't by any means say that mine is a definitive study. It's just a study. We actually repeated this study for inpatient psych patients, a kind of a, another area where people are very controversial about sharing notes. And we shared inpatient notes there. We also asked the inpatient team about whether that would affect their subsequent counseling visit that they had with patients. And again, really found the same things. Again, that you know, patients were actually um, very interested in their notes, felt that actually the documentation was appropriate. It's no edits about confidentiality, that is were actually appropriate edits. I mean, even going to the original study, I remember I had patients who said, Oh, well, I'm not allergic to that anymore. I'm like, perfect. That's you know, that's amazing that you were reading to that detail. You know, I thought you would have just skimmed it over, it would have been nothing to you. But they were actually making appropriate corrections to their note. It really wasn't on any level of confidentiality. And so All I'm saying here is that, you know, we need more data in order to inform um, how we share. I think the Cures Act is obviously making that happen sooner than perhaps that we would like, but I would just say, Melinda, then that offers also another opportunity for data. That's what we need is we need more information and by all means go out and get it. And then we can make, you know, our decisions based on that, but not based on opinion um, and bias. And that's what I would say.
0: What is your preference or recommendation for how we document our notes if we know they'll be shared with our patients?
2: I have not changed
0: the way I document
2: um, because I recognize that we're providers. We wrote this for communication. It's still... a a way in which we communicate with each other. And frankly, it is you know important rather that I teach my patients about what that means and how that reads it so they can understand the lingo, you know, so that they can also be informed when they talk about their care. And it really is essential that they begin to understand that because that wording will happen when they're going around to see different specialists and it will only behoove them to kind of learn that early. And so the earlier you can introduce that to them, the better. If we were all to change the way in which we wrote to, to patients, We would all do that very differently. We all write our notes very differently. We have, at least at our center, kind of, I forced kind of a template on board so that we all kind of have to share the same information. And and I can tell you, um, my clinical research personnel are so thankful for that. Oh my goodness, now I can pull things, you know, that are appropriate to kind of really monitor things. And that's really kind of also where we, in general, have to go. But in general, I still believe that this is kind of a medical personnel to medical personnel communication, and it's really imperative that we keep that there, but also kind of help our patients to understand what they're reading.
1: What's the age at which the ownership of the patient portal data transitions from the parent owning the access to the teen owning the access? Not just having access, but owning the access that it's their chart. Can you speak a little bit about that and how to make those decisions?
2: Um, so I will give the backdrop of my institution, and we have a very forward-thinking CMIO who actually decided, like actually prior to this work that I did with Open Notes and teens, that starting at age twelve, boom, the record was owned by the patient, and so that's what happens at our institution. And so within that context, then all notes were released to the patient, right, the (laughs) 12-year-old access. And then parents were given parent proxy, right? And that's kind of how they had. So they had access to information as well. But of course, in the end, it was the ownership was given to the patient. And to be honest, I think that actually has helped a lot of our transition work, right? Again, policy. This is kind of this, again, recognition that this person is starting to become independent, et cetera. One can argue that kind of the limits of the independence at that age, but because that policy was set, enabled us to kind of then move forward with, okay, well then preparation must begin, right? Because if you kind of give that access, then you need to help people with that access. Um, so that's been our institution policy here. I'm not saying that it's the right policy for all. We definitely have had issues that we deal with from that decision as well. Um, but similarly, others kind of having giving it late also deal with that decision as well. So I think we're all, frankly, in this learning process, right? But even again, the more reason to have to have data right and we need to share that data and learn from that data so that we can learn how and how best to share so that we can give all the benefit and reduce as much you know risk and harm right so i think that's frankly a learning process that we're all going to have to learn shortly with this cures act but again i think if if hopefully some of us at least have some sanity within that, all that chaos to <laughs> collect some important data That would be actually very helpful to all of us. If anybody wants to join me in that process, I'm happy to do that. But that's really, I think what we really need is we need data to inform what we do and not have it based on bias and anecdotal evidence, because that unfortunately is sometimes what happens instead.
1: Besides the patient portal, beyond that, is there anything else that the EHR offers to help in transition?
2: So what we've done is generate an inflammatory bowel disease checklist just for general you know, health maintenance checks, DEXA screens, and general labs that we generally do, just quick reminders to make sure that you've done them and taken that checklist and put the transition services on there, right? So recognizing when the last time you talked about transition, et cetera, so that you can track how you're doing, right? And then for us, that kind of leads into activity where we can see their old scores or what goals we've set around how, pro- how they're progressing or not progressing on a given goal. And I think what you want to do is kind of work within clinical workflow. And I think that's the key to success with transition services is recognizing how the clinician goes through a visit and then giving prompts when needed within that visit. That's not a big alert or something like that because we can get alert fatigue, but kind of working within clinical workflow to make, to ensure that these things happen. And that's really the best way to do that. And so done that within my own system and trying to share that a little bit more broadly, but to encourage others to think similarly. I mean, we're, we all know what our workflows are, and I think just recognizing that is the best way to implement a way in which that we can actually deliver transition services that's not foreign to our workflow, but more integrated within our workflow so that it actually does happen.
1: How do we work with our, uh, our teens to find them their next gastroenterologist?
2: Um, So if anybody's been on the PCI list, I think they've seen my post about Doc for Me. So I thank you for bringing that up. Um, So Doc for Me, again, is an app that we made with our industry sponsors for which we're very thankful. Um, Really to link again, our adolescents and young people with um, adult GI who see IBD really across the country, although I will say that app is not limited, you know, to the US, it's really GPS sensitive, so it can go anywhere in the world. Many people actually use the doc for me app, like um, at least providers tend to use it personally. Um, It's actually a much more powerful app if you give it to the patient and that's really how it's meant to be used. It's meant to be patient facing. Um, That's an app actually that, you know, It kind of messages them to make sure, hey, have you found an adult provider? If not, would you like to search again? It helps them to do that. Um, It's actually, again, as I mentioned, GPS sensitive. So in the past, when people were traveling around, et cetera, maybe college viewing it, say, you know, why don't you just, you're on the campus, hit that app and find out who's around you because you want to know what support you have, you know, if you should go to this particular campus. Similarly, if you're traveling, et cetera, just go wherever that is or enter kind of the city and figure out what resources you have around you. The app itself also provides a transition checklist as to kind of what knowledge and, you know, skill sets they need to have once they kind of hopefully hit college. So it's really helpful to kind of keep them on track. And it also kind of links to vetted resources, which is actually wonderful for families actually to kind of learn a little bit more about IBD. And so these are all vetted resources as opposed to Dr. Google, right? Um, the doc for me app is actually expanding now. Previously, we had just done adult um, providers, but we're actually opening it up now to pediatric providers as well, because we're recognizing that many of our pediatric providers are seeing patients beyond ages than we used to see them before. But also, we also do have young people who unfortunately often have to move kind of within, you know, generally school ages as well. So we want to be sensitive to them and help them as they move. And again, all of those resources are there. So it's a great app, but it's meant to be patient-facing, and we really would love it to give it out to the hands of IBD patients. And so that's, you know, if, if anybody is thinking about using the Doc4Me app, of course you can use it to take a look, you know, to see who's listed. And, and again, you know, if you want to be listed yourself, we welcome you to kind of contact us and be listed. Um, but ultimately it is a patient-facing app, and we would encourage you to, do, to um, you know, give that to your patients. I will say a little something about um, doctor rating, because I know that that's a little bit of a, um, a bit of an angst for some people. They feel like, oh, if I'm listed on there, there's actually some like ratings about, you know, um, recommended by a doc or um, actually there's no down. There's only enough uh, or recommended um, by a patient. Um, and so we never post any negative postings. It's only positive. So I know it's just so people know that.
0: So, um, so now we have a patient who successfully found a physician, and they're starting to see their adult gastroenterologist. So, how do you know that a transition was successful?
2: So, usually, uh, one of the markers that or outcomes people have measured for transition is that that visit even happens, right? Does it happen, and they call that a success that it did. Of course, you know we know that. Well, just because they went once doesn't mean they're going to go twice, right? and here um we definitely need more data um i you know i think even ourselves here we're not really good about following up i think we just kind of have to set a time and then call people up and go you know are you still with the same provider etc we can see it probably we could go into the record and frankly see now that we have generally sharing at least here in san diego most of the providers we will see kind of where visits are happening so we can see at least repeat visits etc um, but I think what we are wanting to know obviously is their own personal experience of the whole transition and you know how engaged are they now in healthcare and, and also were these things helpful for them as they kind of moved along you know, we're early in the process yet, right, with the portal development, etc. So, you know, I suspect we'll probably get some better outcomes in another couple years or so. Um, But thank you for bringing up that point. It's definitely something that we all need to do, you know, much more um, on a scheduled basis so that we don't miss anybody moving forward and get that feedback.
1: Maybe to uh, transition to another subject. See what I did there? Yeah. No, I'm (laughs) but um, maybe I can just ask you. It was something that we ask a lot of our guests because uh, I think as a community we have different. Uh, everyone has grown through advice that they've been received uh, throughout their career. So maybe I can just ask you: What's the best advice you've received in your career so far? and, and what advice would you have for trainees and junior faculty?
2: I don't know if it was a piece of advice, or maybe it was more of a revelation, maybe personal, but also knowing it was a shared revelation was actually very helpful to me. So I think there's a common misperception out there that to be successful, you have to have planned your entire career out, you know, from day one. Um, And the truth is, while maybe there are a lucky few who've been able to do that, what's more the case is that most careers take twists and turns, and that that's normal. Um, And really success is defined more by kind of what you do with opportunities, right? And also kind of, you know, being honest with yourself um, and, being honest with what you find fulfillment with. My successes in my career are things that came to me kind of unanticipated, maybe in in some ways unwelcomed, but through those opportunities, I was really able to find where my heart really wanted, you know, where I wanted to be. And then with that, then pour my passion into that. And then, you know, when you do that, you can bring others, you know, along with you. And what is really probably most important about success is that it's it's often not individual success. It's really, it's a team effort. It really is um, to really kind of build a career. You really do need collaboration. More and more so actually cross-discipline collaboration to really kind of, quote, make it. If you don't have passion for what you do, people will sense that and they won't be drawn to you and drawn to kind of what you're doing. And you really do need that draw to really kind of become successful. So what I would say is just look for opportunities, recognize opportunities, and then kind of recognize what, you know, you find fulfillment with. And I think if you do that and then be honest
0: with yourself, I think then you will find success.
1: That's pretty good advice.
0: I love that because in informatics, especially, you often work across disciplines I really love the team effort.
2: Yeah, and I think it's just it's um it's really nice when you work cross discipline and actually even out of the school of medicine because I think there has to be mutual respect when you bring people of different disciplines together that really kind of makes leaps in kind of science. I think it's that um, working together recognizing talents um, and then also not overlapping each other in regards to what you can do. You know, There's no point in kind of having the same person on the team. It's like, it's really, you need somebody who brings a new point of view to really bring your science to new heights. And so... Um, I love multidisciplinary efforts. They're really wonderful.
0: Dr. Wong, this has just been so lovely sitting down and talking to you about this. We can definitely feel your passion coming through, and you've already done some really amazing things for our adolescents, not just at your center, but across the nation and even internationally. So this has just been really wonderful. Do you have any last words for our listeners? Well, I say this has been great. I really enjoyed speaking with
2: the two of you. But if I've convinced even one person to join me in the field of transition or in informatics or <laughs> needing more data for open notes, then I've had a very successful bell sound. So thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: That was awesome. Such a great episode. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that chat tonight on Monday Night IBD. Check it out, Twitter, 4 p.m. Eastern on December 14th, 2020.
1: Absolutely. Check out at Monday Night IBD or just hashtag Monday Night IBD to follow along.
0: If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Bow Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes.
1: If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three, Things.
0: One, tell one person about the podcast.
1: Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast to help others discover our podcast.
0: And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPEGN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan.org.
1: The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs.
0: And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field.
1: Thank you all for listening. Until next time, bye for now. Stay safe, everyone.
0: Stay safe. See you tonight, Monday Night IBD.